Please be seated. <laughs> Thank you, Mother Liz, and all the wonderful clergy here at Ascension for inviting me to speak today during this really lovely Holy Week celebration. I was standing on a parquet floor overlooking a carpeted sunken living room when I first heard the voices. They bounced off the walls, disembodied, calling and responding to one another in increasingly heightened tones. They were beseeching each other, begging each other, soothing each other. I didn't know who they were or what exactly was causing them such ecstasy and such anguish, just that I was enraptured in a way that I can still recall decades later. It was a family ritual, listening to music after dinner, and my parents were playing one of their favorite albums. It was the 1970 original recording of Jesus Christ Superstar. And it was the first time, long before I ever formally learned about the religion I had been baptized into, that I absorbed the, formal, absorbed the story of the Passion. If any of you are familiar with this musical, you will not be surprised that, having been so dramatically introduced to the events of Holy Week, I was a bit unsettled and a little dissatisfied when I was taught scripture in classroom and church settings and presented with some very neatly packaged interpretations of some of the key figures in today's gospel reading. In the best way possible, the gospel of John makes me tense, which I have learned sitting in these very pews is a feeling that can lead to great abundance. The author of John's gospel writes some of the most compelling, moving interactions between Jesus, his friends, loved ones, adversaries, and yet it is always puncturing these moments with his austere theological insight, omnisciently telling the listener or reader what is going on cosmologically underneath these startlingly human moments and why. This scene is set just so. Mary spreading out the pungent perfume over Jesus' feet and wiping them with her hair. Judas sulking, balking in the shadows there with his fingers cinched tightly around the money box. This scene plays out differently, featuring alternate players in other gospels, but I wanna keep us here in John's unfolding. Here the anointer, the one who foresees a burial on the other side of all this fervor and glory around Jesus, and who has already witnessed a harrowing death and shocking resurrection, that of her brother Lazarus, is Mary of Bethany, whom we are told in the previous chapter of John, Jesus loves. And here, the objector is, not one who, is the one who sets in motion the very death Mary is preparing for, who perhaps also witnessed Lazarus' resurrection, but according to the Gospel of Matthew, will not live to see Jesus's, Judas Iscariot. Here at the table Martha has lovingly prepared is a thrumming trinity, Mary, Judas and Jesus, an interconnected triad of passion, directed, misdirected, redirected. A story that I think ultimately is about what we do with the weight of the love we bear. When I first heard those voices in my living room as a little kid, I didn't need context to know that I was hearing the laid bare emotions of people who cared deeply for each other, for their causes, for their safety and their lives. That didn't simply color the Christian story for me. It unlocked it. 
This formed a core for me that still, on my better days, keeps me centered and present in the Christian mystery. It grounds me when I read words like this that don't invite quick understanding, or when words by this same author are made rote or stale, or worse, sharpened into tools of oppression and corruption. I center myself in knowing that this is a story remembered and deemed sacred about people, that we still remember and still call it sacred precisely because it is about people, because it is the story of what it's like to inhabit a body and then be subject to its pleasures and its pains, the story of how someone who knows he is going to die chooses to spend his last days, what he hopes to leave of himself to those he loves. Here is what I find when I embrace the tension to be found in a storyteller like the author of John. No easy, complacent answers, only a wellspring of questions that feel nourishing to ponder, worth it to sit with. When I sit with it, true to that fruitful tension, I always find myself imagining around John's editorialization. If I think of Mary pouring out that perfume and massaging it into Jesus' skin, I think of how perhaps it smelled so good, it momentarily made her forget how much the corpse of her brother had stunk four days post-mortem. Maybe that perfume was even left over from Lazarus's burial, a cherished token of both rituals kept and order upended. Mary invites me to ask, how do you properly express gratitude for a friend when you feel you can never really repay them for how they've changed your life? What does it mean to comfort? How do you show someone how much you love them when you have an inkling you might lose them? Mary, who sat at Jesus' feet to hear his teachings and threw herself at his feet when he arrived at Lazarus' tomb and who wiped his feet with her hair. Mary, who may or may not have been the one to perform this act, depending on the gospel, but whose legacy, regardless, is loving someone and being loved in return, wholeheartedly, unflinchingly. As for Judas, he who is so often the jagged piece in the story, I have never been able to just swallow the smoothed out explanations for his actions. Judas was a thief. Judas was controlled by Satan. Judas had his head turned by money. When I enter the scene and go sit with Judas in the corner of that room, what I hear are two friends whose ideologies have fallen out of alignment. Two people who may in fact view money very differently and whose reliance on it affects how they move through the world, how they see each other. A man literally clutching what he can actually quantify in his hand, who understands the working of, workings of the world around him in coins, perhaps because they are seemingly solid and reliable and make the exchange of value and power straightforward, unlike confusing parables, unlike the dead coming out of their tomb when they are called. When I think, how could Judas betray Jesus? I think, what do we do? How do we lash out or misstep when we are faced with our own limitations or have to grapple with disappointment? When we feel our love was misspent, 
I think of the words the novelist Naomi Alderman placed in the mind of Judas Iscariot during this very scene. I saw you with my heart, and I have followed you here to a place I do not understand. How is it that we can strive so hard to care correctly, to do what is nominally the right thing, and still wind up chastened, sidelined, telling ourselves we had no other choice but to react accordingly? How does it feel when we are caught condemning someone else instead of seeking to understand them? Here are Mary and Judas, two seemingly disparate points in the carrying out of devotion, of living out the act of being devoted. And between them, between the prescient act of care and the calling for that care to be redistributed, done differently, the one who stands always at the point of tension returns them and all of us to love. While I'm here, Jesus says, while we're still together, he imparts. The ongoing task and the immediate need acknowledged all at once. There will always be people who need to be cared for, but our lives here like this are just a moment. One need not be sacrificed to honor the other. It is all fed by the same eternal source. We care for those in need and we care for those we love. Our lives will be spent addressing the pains and injustices around us and our lives in these bodies are precious. No condemnation required because these are not actually two disparate points. It is worth it to ease the suffering of others because life is valuable and its value comes in things like gathering around a table in communion with those we cherish. Love, which propels the righting of wrongs and the easing of suffering. Love, which outlasts death, which is the vessel for the miracle. May we spend this Holy Week remembering and rejoicing in the abundantly tense truth that we are people who may not be able to choose how our actions are viewed or our stories remembered after we're gone, but who can choose how we spend our days, how we direct our passion, and how, simply, we love.